You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 30th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. NATO's foreign ministers gather in the capital of one of Ukraine's neighbours to reassure the others. The UK grows ever less godly and France apparently falls back in love with the long, languid workday lunch. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Baria Alamuddin and Ivor Geber will discuss all the day's big stories. Plus, we'll speak to Isabel Hilton about the life and legacy of former Chinese President Jiang Zemin. And we'll check in with a couple of art and design fairs taking place in Miami. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Ivor Geber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex, and by the international journalist and broadcaster Baria Alamuddin. And, and neither of you are Danish, so who am I going to gloat at? <laughs> gloat away, gloat away. We'll pretend to be Danish. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I refer, of course... I, I'm not ready to pretend even that. <laughs> I, I, I refer, of course, to Australia's unlikely I'm triumph. I'm sticking to Lebanese-British, OK? <laughs> uh, have either of you been paying much attention to the World Cup, if not necessarily to Australia's mighty vanquishing of the Danish? I have been paying attention to little else, I have to say. I'm a bit of a soccer nut, and um, my own team has a sprinkling of players, which suddenly makes me a great fan of Ecuador, Ghana, and <laughs> Senegal. My, my, my interest is linked to politics, of course. So I was watching Iran and the US. Mm-hmm. And bit I of had history to watch, there. yes, yeah. and I had to watch Wales and, and England. Ditto. And I was with England, of course. Um, I, I do often joke at roundabout now about what the guests are actually wearing, but I am actually, honest to goodness, wearing my 2006 uh, Socceroos shirt. Um, and I think we now have the trifling matter of Argentina or Poland in the knockout round. And how hard can that be? Uh, but we will start tonight's show proper in China, which is noting the passing of former President Jiang Zemin. Jiang, who was 96, was General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party from 1989 to 2002 and President from 1993. 2003. A short while ago, I spoke to Isabel Hilton, China analyst and visiting professor at the King's College London Lao Institute. I asked her if there is still any discernible legacy of his presidency. Well, Jiang Zemin, of course, was leader of the party and president of China at a time which laid all the foundations for the prosperity that people in China enjoy today. So he, for example, promoted businessmen to join the party. He led China into the WTO, working with Jurongji. He he did a lot to clean up the old uh, state-owned industries, dismantling a lot of them, closing down the Rust Belt. And that laid the foundation for all those years of growth, which made China what it is today. Politically, though, he really does belong to another era, because I guess the most significant thing you would recall if you were looking at uh, his own political attitude was that after two terms in office, he stepped down. And that, of course, is what people will be thinking about as they look at Xi Jinping in the current context. He arrived in power, at least at the pinnacle of power, in that period after the massacre in Tiananmen Square in 1989. Those 
reforms he put in place uh, and that outreach he undertook, was was that in any respect informed by Tiananmen Square, some sort of need to atone for it, or at least some sort of understanding it had prompted that China couldn't be that country? He, he was the direct beneficiary of of the massacre, if you like. He, he was brought in from Shanghai, regarded as a not very significant figure, probably somebody whom Deng Xiaoping could, you know, push around. He, he somehow managed to avoid, though, the, the, the massacre being um, associated with his name despite this. There was uh, the, the then Premier Li Peng, who had declared martial law, who had openly advocated the use of violence, went to his grave with everybody remembering that he was a key figure in the, in the deaths in Tiananmen Square. But Jiang Zemin managed to uh, survive that association. And he acquired a reputation as, as, you know, a bit of a fun character, if you can say that about any Chinese leader. You know, he read books, whole books, from beginning to end. In fact, I knew somebody who was instructed to go and find them for him. He wanted interesting reading. His attitude to reform, he wasn't a he wasn't a radical for political reform um, because he did actually replace somebody who had been. But on the economic side, he was pretty firmly on Deng Xiaoping's um, team. And Deng Xiaoping was fighting conservatives in the party who didn't want uh, China to open up to the to, to the outside world. They thought it would bring uh, political contamination. They thought people would get entirely the wrong ideas and the party would eventually lose its place. Whereas Jiang Zemin argued, well, you know, let's get them all inside the tent. Hence the, at the time, really quite controversial move of allowing capitalists into the Communist Party. You can see that the kind of hardline ideologists found that quite hard to swallow. But he did push that through. Uh, all that being the case, and especially with reference to him representing a very different sort of Chinese leader than what we have recently become accustomed to, will the current Chinese leadership be wanting to make a big thing of his passing or not? Well, they will have to have a, a, a state funeral because that's what you do to party leaders or, or late party leaders who have not actually been disgraced and Jiang Zemin was never disgraced but we have just had the 20th party congress and in fact the first one that uh, that he hasn't appeared at so you know there were rumors about his health um, but it was a party congress which which pretty much put a full stop to everything that he had uh, pushed for and stood for. So they won't want to allow a, a kind of loose writing of the obituaries. I think they will very much uh, emphasize his his patriotism, his firm stance on on Taiwan, uh, his. Um, his, his actually his his handling of of the situation, which you might also remember, when when the Americans bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, mm. NATO bombed rather the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, allegedly an error which no Chinese believes. He handled that situation. So I think that those will be the things that are played up, and his um, timely stepping back from office and uh, supporting Deng Xiaoping's kind of rotation of power, term limits kind of approach. That may not get the prominence you might expect. Well, just finally then, how twitchy might the CCP be about staging any kind of formal public event at a time when rather less formal public events are occurring all over China, uh, these being the protests against ongoing COVID-19 restrictions? 
I think that's a real worry, and and there are reasons why uh, I think that the the death of uh, prominent leaders in the past has triggered uh, protests. So, for example, when Zhou Enlai died in, in 1976 and the Gang of Four was very much in command of the party, people took to the streets to uh, to protest and they took to the streets to demand the rehabilitation of Deng Xiaoping, who was at that point in one of his periods of disgrace. And then when uh, Hu Yaobang, again a former party secretary, died in April 1989, uh, that triggered uh, the occupation of Tiananmen Square. So within a week of his death, 100,000 students had marched to the square and were demanding his rehabilitation. And uh, he, he was another reformer who had come a cropper um, for, against the conservatives in the party. And they, the students were, were sat in the square. And that was the occupation that lasted until June the 4th, until it was repressed. So the party leaders will be very uh, aware that the death of a leader whose policies are in contrast to the current policies, and that is the case with Jiang Zemin, that can trigger a kind of tribute to the dead leader, which which becomes very quickly a criticism of current policy. It was Isabel Hilton speaking to me earlier. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Now, back in 2008, NATO held a summit in Bucharest at which the alliance welcomed the aspirations of Georgia and Ukraine to join. This week, NATO foreign ministers have been meeting in the same city, and it is difficult to believe that the location was chosen with no thought of its symbolic significance. Indeed, several of the ministers in attendance arrived via a rail trip to Kiev. The obvious theme of the meeting is reassurance to Ukraine of NATO's support, to NATO's eastern flank of NATO's protection, and to countries neither quite here or there, like Moldova and Bosnia-Herzegovina, that NATO hasn't forgotten about them. Here is some of what NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg had to say. For our final session, uh, the foreign ministers of Bosnia and Herzegovina, Georgia and Moldova joined us. Three valued NATO partners which face Russian pressure. We discussed our shared security uh, concerns and ways to strengthen our cooperation and allies agreed uh, to step up our tailored support, including on capacity building, reforms and training to improve their security and defense institutions. In all our discussions uh, yesterday and today, we were joined by Finland and Sweden. The ratification process for their NATO membership is now nearly complete. Their accession will make them safer, our alliance stronger, and the Euro-Atlantic area more secure. It is time to welcome them as full-fledged members of the alliance. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg speaking at the summit in Bucharest of NATO foreign ministers. Um, Barry, first of all, we'll get to what was discussed in Bucharest shortly, but to the preamble, the trip via Kiev of several NATO foreign ministers, are those visits still important, do you think? Yes, indeed, definitely it's important. And I think Kiev now deserves all the support it can get. And it should be intensified. The the, the situation with the winter there and, and the, the, the Russian aggression that's increasing every day 
uh, it means they need it. Uh, they need it also for Russia to see what is happening. Uh, the, the, the people in, in Ukraine are definitely worried about the arms getting not arriving in time, the amount not being enough, and the quality of, of these armaments. We, they have been promised more. They have been uh, not only in, in number, but also in quality. And I hope this comes because it is not sustainable that people, so many millions, live without electricity, without water with sub-zero temperatures and the temperatures are plummeting very quickly mm -hmm. now. Uh, we in Europe also as well, I see there is a, b a bit of fatigue from uh, 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 migrants and from refugees. So the, the helping them will also help Europe as well in, in, in that matter. Every visit, every support that should be given to the Ukrainians, that can be given, should be given. Ivor, Bosnia came up, uh, Stoltenberg mentioned. Um, is that a warning to Russia? Are there concerns among NATO that Russia is also... I mean, you would think Russia would have its hand full, but stirring the pot in, in Bosnia and elsewhere. Well, I was going to use a, a, a different image. I was, I was going to say that Russia's been nibbling at the edges of NATO for a good number of years. Mm. Um, they took a chunk out of Georgia. They've got a puppet state in Moldova. They are very close to Republika Srpska, which is part of Bosnia notionally but almost independent and then let's not just glance not forget to glance the other way obviously they took a great chunk out of Ukraine and their relations e across virtually all their borders are tense because they're in an expansionist mood so I think NATO is obviously the key bullock but it's not the only area that Russia is seeking to extend its influence maybe it will extend it too broadly we shall see but at the moment Ukraine is the focus and I very much agree with what Barry has said. We have to do everything we can to support Ukraine. Just to follow that up quickly, Ivan, NATO obviously has a long history of involvement in Bosnia-Herzegovina and the, the former Yugoslavia more broadly. Is there anything more NATO can or should be doing than it presently is? Well... NATO because for most of the last few years, it's been trying to scale mm. its activities back. Oh, NATO has a very token presence now in Bosnia-Herzegovina. The, the main Western presence, if you like, is the European Union, which has been trying for many years, and I was been personally involved in it many well, in the early noughties, trying to get Bosnia up to st speed so that it could be a candidate country. Mm. The big problem with Bosnia is there are two big problems. Firstly, it is split three ways between Bosniaks, who many of whom are Muslims, Croatians, Croats who are Catholic, and Serbs who are Orthodox. That is, goes back, and of course that's the story of the Balkans anyway. But it's also deeply infiltrated by criminal elements. Um, it is a very, I won't say it's a very corrupt country, that's unfair, people are doing their best, but one step forward and then the mafia push you two steps back. It's a difficult country to work in. That's why, although um, Croatia is in the European Union and Serbia, by because of its close relationship with Russia, is a long way off. Bosnia would love to be, or at least two-thirds of Bosnia would love to be in the European Union, but it's a long way. And that's the real key problem. It can't be part of the Western camp until, I believe, at least it's, it's 
candidate status in the European Union, which it hasn't got yet. Barry, this is a question which has come up a few times over the last few months, whether the EU and NATO should relax any of those standards that they impose on candidate nations in order to try and get countries like Ukraine and Georgia into NATO faster, mm-hmm. uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina into the EU faster. But the balance there, of course, is if they relax the standards for entry, then there's less well there's less incentive for those countries to meet them and it risks corroding the organization as a whole it's a tricky balance isn't it yes it is but if they take things seriously and and before i say that i just want to allude to the influence that the russians have via wagner in in africa mm. it's huge and it's it's a menace and it's a problem a big problem for african country they're criminal this is sergey progrosian's yes, mercenary group yes they're criminal elements and they're exploiting all the, uh, the, the you know the gold the the precious stones everything you can imagine now going back to 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 europe i think the europeans the speed with which they got Finland and Sweden in is remarkable and it's admirable, which means if they want, they can proceed and they can work. I'm not with relaxing uh, uh, the, 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 what is required of these governments because we have seen with countries like Hungary, with Orban there on top of it, and uh, big problems happening. And, and uh, that, that's why I, I think Europe should settle not only who gets in, but also the the, the the members that it has now because the presence of people like Orban cannot be sustainable, should not be allowed. In the meantime, they should work like they did with the, with the acceptance of NATO, of Sweden and Finland, work hard and work quickly. And I agree with the professor, Bosnia should be in as quickly as possible because then it should be much better governed and maybe we can also get rid of the influence of the huge mafia taking pl- that, is, uh, that is there infiltrating Europe. Well, let's look now at the UK. A new data released from the UK's latest census has thrown an interesting focus on one of the contradictions at the heart of Britain. Though the UK has an established church, bishops sitting in the upper house of its legislature, and a sovereign appointed by God, it is not day in and day out an especially religious country. And the census suggests it is becoming less so. For the first time, England and Wales are minority Christian countries. A hefty minority, to be sure, around 46%, but a minority nevertheless. Um, Ivor, I want to ask first of all about that figure of 46%. Is that something of an overestimate, do you think, given that a lot of those people will have just filled in Christian because that's just what you say when somebody asks? I mean, actual Christian church attendance in this country is probably sub 5%. Apart from Christmas. Apart from Um, Christmas. Yeah. Maybe Easter. People don't even... Forgive, forgive me, Andrew, because you're from the colonies, but here <laughs> people say when you're religion, the automatic answer is C of E, mm. Church of England. If they're attenders of the Methodist or the Baptist, they'll say that. Mm. But the vast, e, and you're to- absolutely right, the vast majority of people who say C of E just say it automatically. Mm. Um, and it doesn't betoken their, their church attendance. However, and I'm now going to sound like thought for the day on a rival channel. Just, <laughs> Would you like some annoying music in the background? <laughs> no, but I'd like to lose... The line should go down at any moment now. Um, I'd like to um, suggest that although it is... I won't say skin deep, they're not people are not regular attenders. There is a, Chris, a, a spine or a, a... Christianity does run through public life in many ways mm. apart from... The house, the 
urgently in need of reform House of Lords with the bishop sitting there. Um, I think that people, as Christian um, theologians, or not just theologians, but people like the Archbishop of Canterbury have a standing. People do listen to them. They have influence. I noticed the Archbishop of Canterbury was in Kiev today. Um, so although, yes, church attendance is poor, and oh yes, theoretically, well, it is a minority, although just a minority. It's a bit like Brexit as a minority. Um, I think Christianity, and particularly the Church of England, is still important to public life um, and I make that declaration as an atheist so I have mm. no um, something in the game um, but yeah I think it's important will it go down the there's an alternative way that there has been a rise in one as part of Christianity mm. which is the Catholic Church the influx of Poles in particular who are in general very devout mm. has given a boom if that's the right word to Catholic churches and I, I, I was speaking to somebody who attends church and has said over the last 10 years as a result of free move, freedom of movement there's been a significant incoming of not just adults but families Catholic families so that is one I, ha I, I can't recall from my news reading of the census whether they identified the, the news stories covered Catholics but I would be interested to see whether they went against the trend. Well, Barry, the, the real boom uh, is for in fact Ivers Tribe, the uh, the non-religious. Uh, the extraordinary statistic that leapt out at me was no religion in this country is now in second place. 37.2%. 20 years ago it was 14.8%, which is a huge surge. To what to what do you attribute that? Yeah, I, I actually must declare an interest. I'm with Ivers. Uh, <laughs> You're in the same but, church. Yes, well, same church. Well, yeah. This is this is answering the question. Yeah. This is where all these people have come <laughs> but from. But would you have yeah. said that ten years ago? Forgive me taking your role. Would you have said that? Were you always an atheist, or are you part of the trend? For many, many, many years, I can't remember ever being a, a, a believer. I am a believer in the, in the theories of, of religion, of any religion, if they are the right ones, you know, mm. the, the classics ones, be good, don't kill, don't steal, etc. But that's uh, a philosophy, not a religion. Uh, and also, I think what, what makes people get away from religion is what you see happening with religion in my part of the world, mm. especially like in Lebanon, mm. when I see that... that the head of Hezbollah that kills, that is a mafia, that, that sells drugs, is actually a sheikh. And, and all the others, his assistant is a sheikh. And when I look at Iran and see how they're killing women and children and young men mm. uh, simply for asking for freedom and a better life and human rights, then how can I believe, you be believe, but, but, believer? But just also the church, the, all the scandals and the churches that, that, that we have seen. I, I believe God should be a, 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 a personal thing. It's in one's heart. You don't need to go to church or to the mosque or to the synagogue. I, I don't know. There is this, there is this perception that, that religion is rather evil than, than good these but, days. But, but just to pick that point up, Bari, and with specific reference to the points you make about the corrosive influence of religion on public life in Lebanon and Iran and indeed across mm. the Middle East... Do you think there's any chance of that changing? Because one of the best books I've read all year, uh, Fintan O'Toole's book, We Don't Know Ourselves, A History of the Recent... Uh a history of the recent past of the Republic of Ireland, a place where, well within living memory, the church was of extraordinary uh, importance and power, and it has just collapsed uh, in a matter of decades. I, I think we should all know and, and expect that religion should be in our hearts, as I said, or in the churches or the mosque or the synagogue, but not in political life. Politics and religion don't 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 go together at all, and it is uh, these countries that have uh, religious leaders, uh, except 
except uh, the Vatican, that you have failed states mostly. Mm. And so that's why you see people in droves are losing faith in religion and, and, and the practices of religion. Again, in the Middle East, our only salvation, really, to get rid of, of, of Iran, the, the regime in Iran, because the Iranian people are lovely people, and the Persian culture is a very good culture and a very rich culture, is to get rid of, this, of, of the regime in Iran. Just to make two observations, we're talking about decline of religion. Of course, one of the figures that stick out is the increase in, in Muslims in this country. Mm. Not as much, but, but a significant increase in Muslims since the last mm. census. Um, but I cannot, but being based in Brighton at the University of Sussex, my eyes were drawn to the figure for Brighton and Hove, which has the least number of religious people, 55%, <laughs> and it has 9% who wrote down on the form other, and it includes Jain, Pagan, Shamanism and Wicca, whatever that might be. I, I think that is a, a variation on witchcraft, though I suspect probably oh. actual Wiccans oh. dislike that term. Right, well I haven't seen... Apologies too genuinely, sincerely to any Wiccans if I have misapprehended it, but I think that's where <laughs> it comes from. Um, we shall move along to something entirely more trivial. Uh, high on the long list of France's charms is its cheerful willingness to embody every stereotype of it, nurtured, perhaps somewhat enviously by a wistful world. A new survey has confirmed that Parisians are enjoying Europe's longest lunch breaks, taking an average of 67 minutes to, one imagines, eat souffle, sip small cups of coffee and argue about postmodernism, possibly to a soundtrack furnished by a mournful beret-clad accordionist. Less languid than Paris were Madrid on 57 minutes, London 52 and Berlin on 47. Um, either this is also a, this is almost as big a leap upwards as the leap upwards apparently of non-believers in this country. In 2019, Parisians were clocking in 38 minutes for lunch. Yeah, I, is this a post-pandemic thing? Well, well I read that figure. That, that's, I, I'm not sure that's right. 38 minutes for Parisians? No. <laughs> I mean, I attend um, the annual meeting um, of UNESCO pretending to represent this country. And um, we, no matter how far behind the timetables we are, we have to have a two-hour break, not because we delegates want it, but the interpreters <laughs> insist on it, and they switch off the microphones. And I sort of find that quite charming, deeply irritating at the time, but quite charming. And there is a different culture, and I have to say, having been slightly cynical about it, there is a value in stopping, not, you know, let's put it another way, the culture of having your sandwiches at your desk, which I plead guilty to at times, is not a good culture. You really do need to get away, and interesting figures to actually meet your fellow workers on a social basis for a chat. I think it's good for morale. I think it's probably good for productivity. Um, so I have to say, looking at productivity in Britain, where we have shorter lunch breaks compared to productivity in France, where they have longer ones, France has more better productivity figures than we do. So draw your own conclusion. Well, Parisians are more likely to eat lunch with their colleagues than Londoners, 67 versus 52%. And I, I can tell those Londoners that 48% of Londoners who are not eating lunch with their colleagues that they are missing out. We do often do that here at Monocle, but Baria, given the extraordinarily multinational gathering here at Midori House, those lunchtime conversations tend very often to be arguments over who has the best crisps. 
<laughs> oh, I see. The answer I, is, of I, course, I, Australia. I lived five years in Paris, and I'm a frequent visitor of Paris. And H- how must... much of that five years do you think you spent having lunch? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Quite a lot, I must say. And, and I cannot believe they missed the wine. I've never attended a luncheon in Paris without the wine or the champagne. It's, it's like the, the thing to do. And I must say, I agree with you again, uh, Ivan, because I really think it's nice to have a break for lunch and then I feel much more productive and mind you even after the wine uh, yes because what's a glass of wine going to do well I'm not talking about a a bottle three four no I'm talking about a glass you say that Baria and I was looking at the historical figures and I am not for a moment insinuating that you can remember what it was like having lunch in Paris in 1975 but in 1975 the average Parisian lunch break the average and bear in mind there would have been you know outliers at both ends the average Parisian lunch break was one hour 38 minutes that is not a one glass of wine lunch people (laughs) were having no no I, I must say I was talking about myself however I must uh, remind you that there are the social lunches that could start with a glass of champagne or go on to, to wine and people don't work in the afternoon. I can uh, allude to many lunches here in London where you go to a lovely place and then you don't have work in the afternoon. I know many of my friends who are not working, the Lebanese ladies, the leisure <laughs> ladies that have this. I'm Unfortunately, I cannot have that. How, however, I do believe in a break and I like it when I see people outside, you know, standing and, and talking to each other and, and getting to each other. It's human, isn't it? I'm reminded when I worked at Westminster and I, the culture has changed, but there was quite a heavy lunch culture there. And I remember taking out... Lunch in inverted commas. Well, I'm, yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember taking out a, a politician who assumed and knew that I was paying. So he picked up the wine list and I had one. And he said, what would you like for starters? And I said, well, I'll have a glass of whatever. He said, no, no, old boy, which bottle are we starting with? Ooh. Oh, good Lord. Oh, God. <laughs> you should see in the House of Commons all the bottles coming at discounted prices, though. Huh? Yeah. If, that if, was another time, I'm yes, sure. Yes, yes. I, I, I can assure listeners that none of that goes on here, which is, of course, why this show is as coherent and acute every day <laughs> as it is. Uh, Barry Alamuddin and Iva Gaber, thank you both very much for joining us. You're listening to The Daily. And we can head now to Monocle, not to Monocle, well, we're sort of heading to Monocle. We're heading to Monocle's correspondent in Florida, uh, where the Swiss Art Fair Art Basel is celebrating the 20th anniversary of its Miami Beach edition. Since its launch, Art Basel Miami Beach has become one of the biggest events in the North American arts calendar and is known for nurturing emerging talent. And happening in conjunction this week is another major annual fair, Design Miami. And our US editor, Chris Lord, is in Miami for us. Um, Chris, first of all, what have you seen? Uh, Andrew, first of all, you know, you, you explain then just how big this thing is. 240 galleries have gathered here in Art Basel, Miami Beach from around the world. Uh, it's a huge event. Um, we'll come to Design Miami at the moment, but I'm speaking to you now from uh, Miami Beach Convention Center where Art Basel is underway. The vernissage kicks off today and then tomorrow they're going to start letting the public in as well. What's striking here, Andrew, is that so much of these galleries when you look around those fairs, the booze, the artworks that they've brought, it's tangible stuff. It's paint, it's canvas, it's clay, it's string and sculpture and all these things that you can touch and hold. And I think it feels a little bit like a, a return to that here because 
What's happened in the last few years is Miami has become this crossroads for crypto, for NFTs. City's really thrown itself behind this new economy. Uh, and of course, we find ourselves now in a crypto winter where a lot of this stuff is, is really having a troubled moment. And so then it, you, you can almost feel that here. People talk about what it was like last year where you couldn't move for NFT events, NFT parties on yachts and all that kind of thing. All that is gone now. There's still the parties, but there's just none of that sort of crypto soaked atmosphere here and instead it's a sort of return to something much more tangible uh, and it's working i mean you just look at the sales sheet from the opening nights uh, on the, the the sort of collector's vernissage on on monday night and you look at some of those sales you know uh, just you know pace is big seller of the, of the night seven million dollars for an for an agnes martin piece it's big money and those economic headwinds that we're hearing about have not quite registered here in Miami Beach, I'd say, Andrew. Well, let's talk about Miami itself a bit as well. It is a a it's the, a big city in a state to whose politics the rest of the world has learned to pay close attention. It's also a state that people move to uh, from elsewhere in the United States and indeed elsewhere in the world, which is why its politics is so changeable. But a lot of people move there during the pandemic. Does Does it feel like they've made a difference to Miami? It definitely does, yes. And I think that's that sort of connects with what's happening in Design Miami. So just literally opposite Art Basel is uh, Design Miami, which is a huge selection of uh, design galleries from around the world uh, presenting work here. And when you walk around that space, you can tell that in many ways what they're doing is pitching at many of those new arrivals who've come to Miami in the last few years, during the pandemic largely, uh, who moved here, many of them coming from New York, looking for tech opportunities for uh, cheaper places where they can, you know, really uh, sort of put down roots and, 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 and get some really exciting properties here in Florida. And now they're coming to design Miami and they're picking up, you know, first rate design to, to fill those houses. It, it, you feel that here. There feels like there's, there's been this injection of uh, new buyers, new collectors here. You talk to the galleries here. They all say that, um, that where at one time there were people who flew in from New York and from Europe and so on. Quite often, a lot of these people now have maybe second homes or base themselves entirely in Florida and in Miami. So it, it's a really interesting time. I think that in this 20th year of Miami Beach, it's really started to make sense, Art Basel specifically now, make sense as a, as a, as a major um, crossroads, if you like, for collectors who, yes, come from all over the world, but also for this local scene, these very important collections that are now based in uh, Chris, as you've suggested, there is a great deal to see at both of these things. But is, is there anything in particular you're most looking forward to? I've just been round, going around the, the booth this morning. There's some, there is some great work here. And because of that tangibility, it, it feels there's something sort of very, it's like a breath of fresh air walking around there. There's so few screens. There's so few uh, digital artworks knocking around. It's its all tangible stuff. Um, I just came out of the Meridian section, which is a whole bit where galleries send large-scale works to be shown that basically they couldn't get into their booths. It's well curated and it's brought together in a very interesting way. Um, and there's some fantastic work in there. There's a great piece, uh, for instance, by a Brazilian artist who spent 10 years collecting lost speedos found on Recife Beach in, <laughs> in, in Brazil. And so he spent 10 years assembling these. He's got this extraordinary collection of speedos that he's then put onto uh, these kind of disembodied torsos made by 
uh, artisans in uh, in and around Recife who would normally make Christ sculptures. So there's this kind of amazing tribute to to this unseen these unseen bodies around there. Um, there's also a great piece actually in that section as well for, by Judy Chicago, fantastic artist from 1985. It's incredibly detailed. Uh, stitched work of essentially of showing a woman giving birth. When you walk past this piece, because it's so detailed in its stitching, it almost has this, you know, this sort of undulating, pixelated effect. As you walk past, the whole thing seems to move before your eyes. But it's not. It's it's just literally fabric and thread, and it's just an amazing piece. So lots of great work here, Andrew. I would say, and also just atmosphere. I mean, last night going around the city to some of the parties going on here. You know, yes, the crypto stuff might be sort of a little bit on on the wane at the minute, but that doesn't take any of the energy out of Miami. And it's just it, the the city has just totally come alive. You talk to people here; everybody knows it's Art Week. It's almost like you're in Venice when the biennials happen on everybody's here you know it's packed with people it's a very exciting place to be right now chris lord in miami thanks for joining us art basel miami beach opens to the public tomorrow and runs until saturday and you'll be hearing plenty more about its 20th anniversary on this week's episode of monocle on culture that is all for this edition of the daily thanks to our panelists today baria alamuddin and Ivor gaber also to isabel hilton at the top of the show today's show was produced by lillian fawcett and researched by emily sands our sound engineer was adam heaton i'm andrew muller here in london the daily is back at the same time tomorrow thanks Thanks for listening.